0: Thank you all so much for coming out here on a stormy Tuesday night. I don't even know what day we're in anymore. Tuesday evening. And uh, we are excited to begin the book of Hebrews, which is just, uh, it, it's a tremendous book. And I, also, I, I think I have a personal opinion on this. I think that it, it's often been somewhat neglected uh, by believers in general. When I became a Christian, I did not. Hebrews was not a book I studied for years. I, I just I avoided it. I was on all the other, you know, Paul's letters. I loved, but Hebrews sort of scared me. And I think it's just how richly it, it incorporates the Old Testament into the gospel and into Christ. And I didn't know the Old Testament very well, and so I think I was very challenged trying to understand Hebrews. But it is, it is a challenging book. But it is just a tremendous book. I think it's really worth the the, the deep study that. That uh, it takes, I think, to sort of begin to understand it. I want to go ahead and pray for us tonight. And if you want to go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter one, you can go ahead and flip there. And let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for <clears throat> this opportunity to open your word and to just spend. An extended period of time working through this first chapter of Hebrews. Uh, Lord, this is a tremendous book in your Word, and it's a privilege to get to study it. Uh, I pray that we would not um, be intimidated. Sometimes it's intimidating, this book, because there's so much about Old Testament history and laws uh, that can feel maybe not as familiar to, to me And so I pray that you would help us not to to feel that way, but that we would see it as a wonderful challenge to step into this and to begin to see how wonderfully uh, the author of Hebrews portrays Jesus as better than everything that he can be compared to. And so I pray as we study, as we think about these things, that you would be at work in us. Uh, I pray that you would use this study in a great way. Uh, I pray, Lord willing, in coming weeks that we would be able to just spend a lot of time in this book and that you would encourage our hearts and strengthen our minds uh, with what we see there, and most importantly, that you would stir our hearts for the Lord Jesus, who is greater and better than all else. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple things here. We won't spend a long time on this, but just some of the historical little tidbits that are nice to sort of know. Um, Hebrews does not seem to be written immediately after Christ's death and resurrection. Um, Instead, you've got believers who've already lived and died. He mentions those who've actually already died in the faith. And so we're we're dealing with kind of second-generation believers. Uh, Chapter 2, he mentions the apostles and those who bore the Holy Spirit bearing witness with signs and wonders. And then he talks about people who never actually saw Jesus personally, and that may even include the author. And so we're dealing with uh, a couple of decades after Jesus' resurrection, so, Jesus dies and rises either in 30 or 33 AD, an endless debate. We'll never, may never know the answer to this side of heaven, but 30 or 33, Jesus dies and rises. And then th- this letter is very likely written in the 60s AD. Um, this is almost certainly written before the destruction of the temple. In what year, ladies and gentlemen? 70 AD. And so it it seems hard to believe that the author would not have mentioned the destruction of the temple if it had already happened, since he's dealing with the temple and sacrifices in in the letter. And so it's a very strong argument to say, before 70, very likely in the mid-60s, so we're talking uh, 25, wait, 40, 50, no, 35 years after Jesus, my math skills, Mr. Hockam, I'm I'm very sorry, my math skills are fading right now. Um, I'll I'll have to count with my fingers and I'll get it wrong still. it, but so that, that's kind of the time period we're dealing with. He also, the author, we don't know who the author was. Um, a lot of people have thought it was uh, the Apostle Paul, and then there's been some strong arguments against that, and uh, nobody necessarily knows for sure. Uh, it's an interesting conversation. I I just don't know. I'm, I'm just I'm just going to say the author of Hebrews, I don't know who it was. Uh, there's arguments. It could have been Apollos. It could have been Luke writing on behalf of Paul's theology. There's a lot of different options, but we, we don't know for sure. But the author knew Timothy. He mentions Timothy uh, late in the letter. And this this letter is really kind of like a sermon in written form. I say that because toward the end he says, uh, he talks about his brief word of exhortation. And that phrase, word of exhortation, is used, uh, I think, maybe only one other time. It's in Acts when Paul's in the synagogue and they ask him to give a word of exhortation. It's the word for a sermon, essentially. And so... Uh, he calls it a brief exhortation. It takes about 45 minutes to read out loud. So a brief sermon was 45 minutes. I don't know if that's literally true. But uh, you get the idea. It's kind of a sermon in, in, in written form. And uh, there's no normal introduction like you might see in a Pauline letter. He just jumps in, and by verse 1, you're going at 100 miles an hour into the deep waters of kind of who Christ is and, and what uh, we can learn. So, Greg, what are some other things you'd say as we, as we step into this book? Um, Some of you guys probably
1: know this, but it's important to remember. uh, Hebrews is very likely written to uh, Jewish Christians, uh, believers who would come out of Judaism, um, became believers in Jesus as the Messiah. And one of the temptations that they face is going back to Judaism. And the reason that is, is in the Roman Empire, Judaism was recognized. Um, If you were a Jew, you were kind of under the umbrella of Rome's protection. Christianity eventually started out kind of under that, but as as Christianity became, it became clear that it was not the same thing as Judaism. Christianity kind of lost that that protection, and so as and, and periodically, as persecution would would arise, there'd be a temptation for these Jews to go back, these Christians to go back to Judaism because it was safe. And so, one of the main thrusts uh, that the author in this book is going for is, if you go back to that, you're actually losing; you're not gaining. Um, and you mentioned when you were praying, you know, one of, one of the main arguments of this is Jesus is better. Everything that they had in Judaism fails in comparison to Jesus. He's better than, as we'll see, angels. He's better than Moses. He's better um, than the sacrificial system. He's a better priest. He's a better everything. He's supreme in every way. And so one of the main parts of this, one of the main emphases of this is don't go back to, to what you left because if you do, you're actually abandoning hope of salvation, abandoning hope of heaven, and everything good that God has given. Um, so that that's one big thing that we need to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, you know, like with, with with my with my son Micah, he loves playing, obviously, with cars. Who doesn't love playing with cars? Let's be honest. That's that's still a temptation for all of us. But he's got all these little you know Hot Wheels and things like that, little trucks, and um, you know he's always asking which one his favorite one is, and he's crashing them into each other and all that. Well. Um, That's totally good when when you're dealing with an almost four-year-old. That's totally healthy and good. But when it's a 44-year-old and uh, they're still playing with little cars and something might not quite be right there, and the idea is, the, the little model cars are supposed to sort of get into his head what it's like one day to have a real truck, a real car. And when he one day, Lord willing, gets his own car, uh, he'll leave the toy cars behind because those were pointing towards this reality. And once he has a real car, a real truck, he doesn't need to go back to the toy car. And um, I don't mean to give a trite illustration, but when you think of the animal sacrificial system, it was a good thing at the time in which it was there. It was, it was righteous to do that. It was, it was the right thing to do, to deal with sin. But it was forward-looking. Uh, it was a model. It was a shadow forward-looking to Jesus. And when the reality shows up, going back to the shadow is completely missing the point at that, at that point. So, yeah, it, the shadow was good before the substance arrived. But once the substance arrived, you don't go backwards in, in redemptive history because then you lose Jesus if you step back at that point. If you reject him and go back to the Old Testament and, and try to do what Israel was doing then, uh, then, then something is out of order and it's a serious uh, error. Well, it's kind of like, um,
1: I've got a couple of things in my head to share on this. It's like um, if you have a picture of your spouse or a loved one, um, and your spouse or loved one actually comes in the room, you keep hugging the picture. Um, You know, the picture is representative of them, but once the, the real person's there, you don't go hug the picture and, you know, put the picture in front of you and have your dinner by yourself. You actually have it with your spouse, the real Person and another thing, thinking of you know the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the temple um, all all of the old testament system um, i can 't remember who I heard this from originally, but imagine you have your three year old try to draw you a, a picture of New York City you know and there it 's going to represent New York City, but you know that that picture cannot represent fully the reality it points to it, but once the reality is here, you see it in three d uh, real life uh, for what it is. And so it, that's what, he, that's what the, the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. It's like choosing the picture over the person and taking the three-year-old crayon drawing versus seeing the thing and experiencing it yourself. It, it's, it's like preferring the drawing over the reality, preferring the picture over the person. And he's like, now that the reality is here, why would you go back? Why would you go back?
0: So you'll notice, as we look at Hebrews, you're going to have this—the author goes back and forth. So for a little while, the author will compare Jesus to something in the Old Testament. It could be a person, it could be an institution, like the temple. Uh, it could be anything like that, uh, uh, the, the, the wilderness wanderings, uh, Joshua, all these different things. He'll compare Jesus to something in the Old Testament. He'll show why Jesus is superior. He's better. He's greater than that thing, and then he'll say, now here's, the, here's a warning. If we forsake Jesus here's the alternative. Here's here's the kind of judgment that that we face. And there are some very serious warnings in the book of Hebrews running throughout. So he keeps alternating between That's kind of the—again, not all my illustrations sound kind of trite right now, but it's kind of the carrot and the stick, right? You've you've got the positive motivation, and you've got the negative reinforcement. There's the Jesus is so much better than everything else, so pursue Jesus. But on the alternative, if you turn from Jesus, there's the stick, right? There, there's, there's the threat. There's, there's, the, there's the, the, the possibility of judgment for those who turn away. So he's constantly jumping between those two, the, the better in Christ and the, and the, the, the horror of, of rejecting him.
1: Yeah, and in, in light of that, too, another thing you'll see, kind of a, a big theme, is the doctrine of perseverance in faith. Um, you know, it, it, the argument of Hebrews is it's not how well you start, but if you finish. I mean, we, we've talked through Hebrews 11 already. You've, maybe you've seen that online. You know, it, it pictures the Christian life as like a marathon, and it's not, you've got to get to the end. You know, you're being cheered on, and you, you keep running. It's a long-distance thing, not like a quick sprint. Uh, one of the main uh, just things that this author is, is just gripped by is the need for Christians to persevere. So it's not enough that we start out making a very big profession of faith. And, you know, it's this big deal. You think of Jesus' parables when he talks about, you know, the seed that fell on the rocky soil, uh, you know, immediately springs up with joy. But when persecution or temptation comes, he turns away. Um, you know, or the, you know, the, the seed that grew up but was choked out by the thorns. It's not just how you start, but is it will you persevere? in bearing fruit for God? Will you persevere in clinging to Christ, even when everything else you have might be taken away? And, you know, those warnings come. It's like, look, don't, neg- don't turn away from the Jesus that you profess. Hang on to him. Hang on to him to the very end, and the reward will be 150 billion percent worth it.
0: Yeah, that's great okay let 's uh, go ahead and jump in now before before we read this i 'm just going to warn you, and I, I mean this just seriously this this chapter chapter one uh, wow it 's a challenging chapter uh, i I have never felt like i 've had a strong grasp on the whole thing. Um, this chapter has fascinated me uh, his his massive amount of quoting of the old testament and it 's just very dense, you know like where he'll he 'll say in one verse enough things that we could talk about for a long time, so he just uh, listen here, I'll just read the first uh, few verses, and then we'll, we'll, go, uh, we'll, we'll start breaking those down in a little bit more detail. This is Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I'm just going to stop uh, right there. And so these first few verses are absolutely packed. Um, Let me just reread the first two one more time. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So that's Old Testament. But in these last days, this is New Testament, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. So we're two verses in and you already see this pattern starting. The author is already comparing Jesus and the revelation given through him and his apostles with the revelation in the Old Testament. And and hear this clearly, both revelations are God's word. Both of them are inspired and inerrant. He's gonna quote the Old Testament in just numerous times throughout this letter. He believes the Old Testament is God's speech. No question about that. But the revelation of the gospel coming through Jesus is of a superior quality. It it is the final and decisive revelation of God. In the old covenant, God spoke in many times. He spoke in many different ways, dreams and visions, through prophets, through all different kinds of things. But in these last days, He's given His final and decisive word through His Son, the Lord Jesus, and the gospel. And so, we need to listen to what the Son has to say. That, that's, that's sort of the thing. He's raising up Jesus to say, yes, the Old Testament is the Word of God, and it all points to Jesus, who is the final and decisive Word uh, of God. Yeah, and in
1: light of that, too, thinking of Christ being the, the final revelation of God, that, what that means, as you mentioned, the Gospels, it's, it's all that we have written down in, in the, the New Testament in terms of the life of Christ, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, you know, Christ continued to work by the Holy Spirit through the early church and the apostles. That's the book of Acts. Um, and when we think of his son, you know, how, how, how would we say that the the letters and all of that, well, what are they doing? They're unpacking everything that Jesus taught. And as the Holy Spirit was giving insight and revelation, they're, they're doing nothing more than explaining and applying Christ in his work uh, what that what it accomplished, what it means for how we live, how it leads us to anticipate what God is going to do in the future and so when he says he 's spoken to us by his son that that's a, an early way I think of referring to what we have now in our completed new testament the twenty seven um, 27 books, because God, you know, we, we talked about this in John, other places, you know, Jesus was like, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to bring to your remembrance all that I said, um, he's going to, you know, reveal the things that are to come, um, and, and so that's exactly what, what this God speaking by his Son is is all that God knew the church was going to need until Jesus comes back. He has given us. So there, there is no expectation of more revelation after this because it was the apostles and their generation who were kind of the means by which God gave us the New Testament. And when that generation died out, there's no more to expect. Like there is no more Scripture-level anything from God that we should ever look for. Everything we need, Peter says this, for life and godliness, we have and it's written down for us
0: right here and, and that that responds to things like. Where in, in Islam, the idea is that, well, yeah, the Scripture, the Christian Scripture was in many ways God's Word, but it's been corrupted over the centuries, so we need a new, uh, a new revelation from God from angels uh, who will speak to Muhammad, and he will, he will have this fresh, new revelation from God. Or the Book of Mormon, same thing, right, where you have Joseph Smith saying similar kind of argument. The, the New Testament was God's Word. It was corrupted. We need a new revelation from God. Then he has angels appear to him, and he records that revelation, And this just kind of gets us into a topic here that we'll we'll talk about more in a moment. But have you ever wondered why the obsession with angels in this chapter? I mean, I've always, like, I have never in my life been tempted to think an angel is greater than Jesus. Okay, like, I've, I've had all kinds of problems in my life, but that's not a problem I have personally struggled with. Okay, it's like, is the angel Gabriel greater than Jesus? I'm like, not, nope, that's not hard. That's pretty easy. So he spends. Uh, most of the chapter, and these talks in chapter 2 he continues, he's comparing Jesus to angels. And I have puzzled over this, and in recent days a lot of solid commentators have really said almost identical things, which was, it was very helpful to read this from a lot of people. But I want to suggest something to you, and, and you can test this. If you don't think this is right, then don't believe it. But, but d- d- let's test this. So uh, here, here's, here's an option for why angels become so prominent in this chapter. You ready to talk about angels? Here we go. So first century, in the first century, uh, Jewish people in general uh, were pretty preoccupied with angels. If you read the intertestamental books, there's a lot of talk about angels. And um, let me just reference a couple things. So when Stephen is about to be stoned to death in Acts, you don't have to to turn there. I hope I can find it quickly. In Acts 7, when Stephen's about to be uh, murdered, he says these words to the Jewish leaders. He says, you, you, uh, you who received the law, Old Covenant, as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Okay, do you see that? So th- you, you received the Old Covenant law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Or in Galatians 3 19, Paul says the same basic thing that the law was given uh, by angels. Uh, This comes from Deuteronomy 33, the same thing. When the Lord came down on Sinai, he came with a host of angels with him. And so in the Jewish mind thinking, in the Jewish mindset, and in the biblical mindset, when God was at Sinai giving the law, angels were involved. I don't fully understand how exactly in detail, but angels were involved, according to the Old and New Testament, in the giving of the law. They were were involved in the giving of the law. And if you don't believe that, look at chapter 2 of Hebrews. Just to show you this is in the author's mind, look at 2.1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and attested by those who heard. Okay, do you see here? He's comparing revelation given by angels in the Old Covenant to revelation given by the Lord Jesus in the New Covenant. Do you see it right there in chapter 2? So I am, I am increasingly convinced that this is actually not about the worship of angels. Uh, I know that that was also a thing amongst some Jews. There would be a veneration of angels. I don't think that's the main thing. I could be wrong. I don't think that's the main thing. I think the author of Hebrews is thinking about the fact that the Jewish people focused on that God's word in the Old Covenant was given through angels, by angels in some way. He even mentions it in two two, And so he says, listen... If I want to show that Jesus and the new covenant is superior to the old covenant, I've got to prove Jesus is greater than the angels who gave that. You see? You see the argument there? So if the old covenant came through angels, the new covenant comes through Jesus. If I show Jesus as being superior to angels, I win the argument. That's his point, right? Because now we know Jesus and the new covenant is, is better, is greater than the old covenant delivered by angels. And I think that's what's going on. That's why he's talking about these things. And he even starts the chapter, remember, comparing God giving his word through prophets, and then we have angels, and then through Jesus. And then he's going to basically compare Jesus and angels from verses 4 all the way to 14, and then even into chapter 2. So before we get further into that, I've got a little list here. So before we get to all the angel stuff, uh, I just mentioned these, and I want to hear Greg as we talk through this. So, in verses two and three, just two verses, Jesus is called seven different things. And the actual wording is straight from the text, but I got this from a pastor named Arkent Hughes. So, just listen these are seven things Jesus is called just in two verses, verses two and three. He is called the inheritor, he is called the creator, he's called the radiator, he's called the representer, he's called the sustainer, he's called the purifier, and he's called the ruler. I'm going to say that one more time, and then I want to talk about these briefly. Jesus is the inheritor, verse 2, the heir of all things. Number 2, he's called the creator, verse 2, through whom also he created the world. Number 3, he's the radiator, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Uh, number 4, he's the representer. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He perfectly represents God, because in his nature, he's identical to God's nature. He is, he is equally divine. Number five, he's the sustainer. You see that in verse three? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He sustains, he carries the universe by the word of his power. Uh, Number six, he's the purifier into verse three. After making purification for sins, so he's the purifier. And number seven, he's the ruler. He sat down into verse three. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's amazing. Seven incredible things about the Lord Jesus in two verses. Do you see what I mean by dense? That is dense. And so let's just kind of walk through. We, we, don't, we don't have time to spend a lot of time on these, but uh, Greg, thoughts about him being the heir of all things? What's What does that mean?
1: Condense, right? <laughs> Condense. There's a sermon here. Um, well, think, um, and he's going to quote from 2 Samuel 7 um, at one point, in chapter 1, which is deals with God's promise to David to that he would raise up from David's own lineage um, a succession of kings. That David's um, you know, that his sons would be king, his son would build the temple and you know, he's saying, you're not going to build me a house, David I'm going to build a house out of you, a dynasty um, that's going to continue. And what's significant about that is when David responds to God in prayer he talks about the fact that what God has just revealed is instruction for all mankind. It's Torah for the world. And what does that mean? Except that David realizes this promise of kingship means he's going to inherit the world as his kingdom one day. Somebody from his line, a son that will come from him, will be king over the whole world. Now, David, there's a whole lot that goes into filling that in, but David understood the global significance of what God was promising him um, in that moment. And so when we read here that God has spoken by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, you know, Jesus as the Son of God, being fully God, he already owns all things. So it's not like he's going to receive something as God that he doesn't already rightly own. This is in his role as a son of David, I think, simply because of what he says later, that he is the heir of the world. He is the He is the one who's going to receive the world um, to rule over in every conceivable way. So, condensed. That's all. No, that's Um,
0: let me make it even. Let me make it less condensed too. But that's excellent. So, just real quick, just remind ourselves of the basic story of the Bible. Right. This is really short. So, God created human beings to be His image bearers and to represent His rule on earth. Right over the whole earth, fill the earth, subdue it. They, Adam and Eve failed immediately, it looks like, very soon. And so God promises that from the line, the seed of Eve, and ultimately the seed of Abraham, a, a, a man, a king is going to come, and he's going to crush Satan's head, and he's going to restore God's dominion over the earth, right? That, that's the promise. You see it in Genesis, the, Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah. It says that the scepter will not depart from Judah uh, until he gets the obedience of the peoples. This is the whole world is going to bow down to the king from the line of Judah. That's in Genesis. And then you hear, it just that stretches through the whole Bible. You keep hearing this king, this Davidic king, who is going to have the obedience of all the nations. Mm-hmm. Psalm 2, which he quotes, uh, and, and on and on. So Jesus is that, and he's going to inherit the new earth, the new creation, and all yeah. tribes and, and peoples will, will worship him, and, and those who believe in him will be, will be part of that. Yeah. Okay, number two, uh, the creator, uh, this is again in verse two, through whom also he created the world. Uh, Greg, I thought I thought God the Father created. What what is this saying about Jesus created? How do how do we understand the, the Trinity Trinity here in creation?
1: Um, well, again, let's let's condense. Um, but obviously, we know God in terms of just a general description as God created everything. Um, and you read places in the Old Well back in Genesis, it says He spoke and it was. He spoke and it was. I think a Psalm 33 said it was by the word of the Lord the heavens were made by the breath of His mouth all their host and so we see there is this creative power to the word of god um and so there's a lot more we could say on this but just for time's sake we come to the new testament you think the gospel of john in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god Um, all things were made through him without him was not anything made that was made so there's this second divine being alongside the father who is active in god creating the world And we have the pattern in the Old Testament of God doing things by speaking, but we come to learn that God's speech is actually a person, a divine person who is his son. Um, And so, and again, when it comes to the Trinity, guys, we may not fully understand it. Um, If we try to fully understand it, we'll lose our minds. But if we deny that's what the Bible teaches, we will lose our souls. That's, I think, Adrian Rogers said that. so it it pushes our, our ability to think to the limits, okay, that God is one and God is three at the same time, but yet one God. Um, but when he says, through whom also he created the world, we can say, okay, God the Father created through the Son. If he spoke, the Son is that word doing the creating that God was doing. I think there you could see a picture of that when you think Genesis one and two. You know Genesis one, the big sweep of things, God speaking. Genesis two, you know God personally forming the man uh, from the dust. You see pre-incarnate Christ, something like that. Um, God taking personal. You see the Word of God at work doing that. Um, so through whom He created the world. Um, you know it. It doesn't leave. It, it, it leaves nothing out. Jesus created everything.
0: And just going right with that number three, we've got the radiator. So look at, uh, that's not something in your car, by the way. <clears throat> Verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's also the representer. So I want to put these two together. He is the radiance of the glory of God to start there. the Radiance of glory is kind of like saying he's the light of the light. Right, the radiance of the glory. Well, glory is shining, and radiance is shining. He's the radiance of the glory. It is saying that Jesus is so closely associated with God the Father. Uh, he ca- has all the characteristics that he is the very shining out of God's glory, and he's the exact imprint of his nature. Th- think of like a signet ring, right? Where you have wet clay, and you roll the signet ring over the wet clay, and the shape on the clay. How similar is it to the signet ring? Well, it's an it's an exact replica. God's nature is perfectly seen in the nature of Jesus because it's, it's the same. They are both in the divine nature. And so, just, just think about this. A movement began, the very beginning was, was almost exclusively Jewish, it became a Gentile thing as well. But for, for, I mean, just how could this have happened? A movement of mostly Jewish people are worshiping as God, using this language, a man who was crucified by Romans that is crazy. That is crazy to believe. How could, how could someone who was, who was crucified by the Romans, hung on a tree, therefore, according to the Old Testament, cursed of God, which was true, how could a man who was cursed of God and hung on a tree and, and killed by the Romans, how could that guy be of one nature with the Father. That is not possible. How could thousands and tens of thousands of Jewish people believe that in those early years in the city of Jerusalem where he was crucified, and then begin risking their life to believe that and to be killed, many of them over time, many were killed, for the faith in that Messiah? It doesn't make sense unless Jesus rose from the dead. It it does not make sense unless Jesus had proven this to be true by his resurrection. Okay, We'll just keep moving quick. Sure. We got, so the, the sustainer, uh, verse, I mean, number five, uh, this is in verse three. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Greg, thoughts about any of that? Well, again,
1: only God has the ability to uphold the universe, and so... You know, one who upholds the universe must be God. And so that's one thing else he's saying. You know, Jesus, by his his word, when Christ speaks, it, it, he speaks with the very power of God because he is God. Um, and so I don't understand how that works, um, but it's very clear that we continue in existence right now. Our hearts continue to beat. This building continues to hold up. Um, our cars hopefully will run and get us home um, at the time we want to when all this is over because Jesus is upholding everything by his word. Um, so yeah, like he keeps us in existence. I think Colossians says all things were... Uh, I'm, I'm going to look there because I'm not going to remember how, he, how Paul said it, and I don't want to butcher it. Um, chapter 1 says he is before all things, is verse 17, and in him all things hold together. So in a sense... You don't want to diminish Jesus by using an illustration like this, but he's kind of like the glue that holds everything together. Um, like things would fall apart if Jesus stopped keeping them the way they are. Um, so that's his cause for thanks right there. Um, we continue to live and breathe and move and everything because Jesus
0: allows us to and empowers us to. And, and th- that's exactly right. That's the opposite, right, of a deism. Right, so deism is God sort of sets the world in motion, winds it up Mm. like a clock, and steps away, and it just sort of runs on its own. That is not the picture. In the Bible, God is intimately involved with keeping the world. He's upholding the world. Uh, Tyler, you mentioned a couple years ago you taught on this, and you talked about the word for carrying, right, moving it. And several commentators said the same thing that that I think you were getting at, which is that not just is he sustaining it, but this word means to kind of carry. And and it may also have the idea of carrying to a conclusion, moving it in a redemptive direction as well as sustaining. So you you see the Lord Jesus doing doing, uh, something that only God could do, and he's intimately involved. The laws of nature don't just exist. Jesus, the guy who lived two thousand years ago in Palestine, he makes the laws of nature and science. Those work, and and the things I can't even talk about because I don't understand them. Those things exist and keep working because Jesus tells them every moment to do so. That's why they exist. Uh, God doesn't just step back and let it go. God is intimately involved with His creation. Can I make another comment, an
1: application on this um, that I hope will be encouraging? Um, You know, Him carrying all of things, moving all of history. To a certain place. You know, we, we look at our day and time, and it's, it's quite frankly unnerving just the, the way people are acting, the way people are thinking, the things that people are saying, um, the hostility that we see towards the gospel, the animosity. I mean, it's not just that people don't like Christians, like, there is a, a, a fostering of hatred um, of, of Christ, of the gospel, of the way God created things to be, all that is good and beautiful. The, the world is being um, trained to hate God's design, um, which God declared good. And so we look at that, and we might say, you know, it, it is cause for alarm. It's unsettling. But let's look at it this way. Go back to before Christ came. Think of the fact of all the upheaval of nations with Babylon and then the Medo-Persian empire and then Greece and then Rome and and you look at kingdoms rising and kingdoms falling and great upheaval God was positioning everything for the first coming of his son. Okay, all that we are seeing now is God putting things in place for the second coming of his son. So none of what we are going through, we think of him holding all things, carrying all things to with a goal in mind, God is positioning the world for Jesus to come back. So take heart in that because it means none of this is catching God by surprise. None of this um, is somehow outside the plan and purpose of God. And so whatever the hardships we're going through, we can take comfort in knowing God is doing something to prepare the world for Jesus to come back have no idea when that's going to be, and we should never try to set a date, but know that that's what God's doing. None of this is purposeless. None of this is Satan or sinful humanity somehow overthrowing God's purposes. Now, as it says, he upholds the universe. He's carrying everything to where he wants it to go, and not one
0: molecule will be out of place when it gets there. So be encouraged by that. Well, let let me just continue with that. So if you look at verse 5 in in Hebrews 1, the first Old Testament quotation is from uh, Psalm, I want to make sure I'm getting this right, Psalm 2. And he says, for, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Okay, I, I want to go there for a moment. So you can hold your spot and turn with me to Psalm 2, where he quotes that. And as you are turning there. Uh, This is a psalm we are told uh, somewhere in Scripture, we're told that David actually did write Psalm 2. I'm trying to remember where that is, but uh, David pens this psalm, and and listen to what happens here. I'm going to read a a good bit, maybe the whole thing here. Just listen to Psalm 2 in light of your talking about the nations being upheaval against God's purposes. Uh, Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, no, pause. Does that sound like today? You got the nations striving against God and His Messiah? Right, his anointed one, and they're trying to burst his rules. They, they want to get, get rid of his bonds. Get, get, get his rules off of me. I do not want to obey the God of the Bible. I do not want to live that way. And, and you see this kind of conspiracy amongst the nations to throw away God's rule. And what's God, is God up in heaven wringing his hands? You know, I heard a pastor say the, the, the Trinity never met in an emergency session. You know, like, during COVID, we're all having these, like, school meetings. Last second, we're changing everything. We're having these emergency meetings. It's never been like, uh, the the Trinity, quick, come in here. we got to figure this out. No, that's not what happens. God is sovereign. He sees the end from the beginning. Look at verse 4. He responds to the nations. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying... As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's the theme we saw earlier. The whole nation, the whole world will be under the power of the anointed. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now, uh, there's all kinds of stuff we could talk about, but do you see the, the, the words, Today I have begotten you? That sounds strange, isn't it, to say God on a certain day? beget jesus right i mean cults have used this verse to say jesus was a created being god on a certain day god begat jesus that's not what's going on here first of all this psalm was not only about jesus okay this psalm does ultimately point to jesus but like many things it's about the davidic king which could be david solomon and it could be eventually jesus so here's here's what this psalm means david writes this this is the psalm about the day that a davidic king becomes king when david was born was he king no, he became a king at a certain point in his life. Solomon was not king when he was born. He became, he was anointed and became king. On a certain day, he became the son of God in that sense, uh, the, 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 the king representing God. Let me just pause. So, so you, you, David is called the son of God, right? Not in the blasphemous sense. Who, whoever, like, okay, I got to back up here for one second. So Adam is called the son of God in Luke 3, Right? And then you've got Israel called the son of God. Remember, Exodus four twenty two, let my son go, Pharaoh, my firstborn son. So Israel is God's son. And then the Davidic king is the son of God, not the second person of the Trinity. But, but remember, sonship means you act like your dad, right? You act like your father. And so Adam and Eve were called to represent God and failed to be his sons. They failed to represent him. Israel was called to look like God, like a son looks like and acts like a dad. They failed. The Davidic king was called to specially represent and look like God and to be son of God, to represent God as a son. And David and Solomon in many ways failed. And Jesus shows up, and Jesus, you've got to listen carefully here. Um, Jesus has been the son of God forever, second person of the Trinity. But he hasn't always been the Davidic king. This is not blasphemy. Hang with me here, okay? Because before the virgin birth, he wasn't the Davidic king yet, right? Because he had, you had to be a human being in the line of David to become the Davidic king. He was not that kind of son of God yet. He was the second person of the Trinity forever. But he was not the Davidic king until he was born, lived, died, rose, exalted. At that point, Jesus... Today I have begotten you. Jesus became the Davidic king upon his resurrection and exaltation, and he was seated at the right hand of God, now sitting as the God-man. okay, He's always been the son of God in divinity, but he became the Davidic king through his life, death, and resurrection. And there was a certain time, I think Hebrew says, upon his exaltation to heaven, where today he became the Davidic king in, in, full, in the full sense. And so, if that confused you, uh, we could talk about it in more detail later. But that, that psalm, I think, is, is a powerful background to what's going on in Hebrews. So, let's flip back to Hebrews chapter 1.
1: It says, After making, well, can we move on to that? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, um, something hit me looking through this because uh, obviously Hebrews is always talking about how Jesus is better. So we, we see here condensed, very, very, very much condensed, this, the, the sacrificial work of Christ for us. He's going to unpack this in much more detail throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews. Um, but in a, in a very succinct way, um, he's saying two things here. Um, one, Jesus has purified his people from their sins. So, what that means for the believer is that if you are in Christ, then your sins have been wiped away forever. Um, It is a completed act. Um, We don't add to this purification, we don't enhance it, we don't make it better. We simply receive it Um, because it's not something we do, it's something Jesus did in his death on the cross. He completely purifies His people. I think it's it's chapter 10, um, says He has perfected for by a single offering, this is verse 14, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He goes on to talk about the new covenant, and then He says, verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offerings for sin. And so, Jesus is the better and final sacrifice for sins. There's nothing else outside of him. He is all we need to be purified in the sight of God. Uh, so great is his work. And then following from that, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we'll look at this more later in Hebrews. You know, the, the comparison between Jesus as our high priest and the priesthood that ministered in the temple, they're daily going about their work, standing, walking, doing the thing. Jesus' work is done, so he sat down. Meaning in terms of procuring forgiveness of sins, righteousness for us, cleansing of sins, and all that goes into that that we need, it's done. It's absolutely finished. So we go back to when he was on the cross that it is finished. That's what this is talking about. He sat down at the right hand of God. I think there's king, kingly... Um, undertones on this as well, but in terms of Christ as a sacrifice and a a priest, His work, in terms of of offering the sacrifice and and accomplishing what we need to be right with God, it's done. And that's why it is so vital um, in, in, in terms of this book that we don't depart from that. Because if Christ has done everything that's necessary and there's nothing else that can be added, then why would we go back to a system that is consistently reminding us that it can't do what we need. And that's one of the main arguments of the book and one of the, the, the strongest grounds for our assurance and our hope that, that our salvation is not based on our works is because Jesus has done it all and He has finished His work. You got thoughts?
0: No, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, let, let's continue here. So again, I'll read verse uh, 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So just real quick, uh, just try to break this down. Uh, I found a a helpful chart uh, today that really made sense out of some of this. So um, what what, uh, the author says about Jesus in the first four verses... This is what he does. So the first four verses, remember, really dense. He says all these things about Jesus for four verses. And then he stops, and from verses 5 to 14, he uses a bunch of Old Testament passages to back up what he already said in verses 1 through 4. Does that make sense? So he he makes these glowing declarations about Jesus, and then you could say, well, where are you getting this? And he says, well, let me show you. And he quotes Old Testament text after text to show you what I said about Jesus is true, and the Old Testament agrees with me. So just for instance, That Jesus is, in verse 2, the heir of all things, you see that unpacked in verses 5 through 9. So Jesus' position as heir and king, you see unpacked in verses 5 through 9. His claim that Jesus created the world, in verse 2, is unpacked in verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Jesus is there being said to be Lord and the Creator. So He's Creator in verse 2, and He backs it up with the Old Testament in verse 10. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, he has the same nature as God. You see that in verses 11 and 12. Uh, He has the same nature as God, unchanging and eternal. The end of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down and became as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And you see almost the same wording in verse 13 and verse 14. Where Jesus sits down and is superior to angels, so you, you see what's happening four verses of glowing statements about Jesus, and then multiple verses unpacking from the Old Testament, especially the psalms that he's not just making this up this 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 came from the Old Testament text and have, has been applied uh, pretty brilliantly to to Jesus
1: all right um, there's a lot we can say on this. I want to look at verse ten um, through twelve okay this this is a, a several verses that are a little more significant for me, just because of an interaction I've had. Um, some of you been in, uh, were at my house. We had discussion group there. We prayed many times for a lady named Anna, um, and Anna is a Jehovah's Witness who came to my door. And um, I struck up a conversation with her. We had a, a kind of an ongoing dialogue. Uh, it ended up going kind of to text message because it was just kind of easier to put your thoughts out. Um, we went back and forth, and she was trying to obviously convince me that you know, the, that Yahweh or Jehovah of the Old Testament is not Jesus. Jesus is not Jehovah, because Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that there's a Trinity. They don't believe that Jesus is the eternal, divine Son of God. Um, and so one of the things I was trying to do in that conversation uh, with her was help her see, obviously, that the Bible is very clear that Jesus is divine. He's eternally God. Um, the same as the Father and the Spirit. And one of the clearest verses that you can go to, um, I think, to help a Jehovah's Witness um, see that Jesus is divine, that He is the eternal Son of God, is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And the reason I say that is he's, the, the author here is quoting Psalm 102. We don't have time to read all of Psalm 102. Um, But throughout Psalm 102, it is a psalm to Yahweh, a psalm to Jehovah. Um, And repeatedly, he's addressing, the psalmist is addressing God by his divine name. And so what's happening here in verse 10 says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. That section in Psalm 102 actually doesn't include the divine name of God but it's the same thing like if we pick up reading like in our bibles and it says he and we knows it's jesus we'll say he jesus just to make sure we know who it's who it's referring to that's what the author of hebrews is doing here he's showing us that Who? what he's quoting is to God, and it's using the divine name of God, Yahweh, or Jehovah, if you want the older way of saying it. And so again, keep in mind, a Jehovah's Witness is going to say, Jesus cannot be Jehovah. It runs contrary to their entire system. And here in Hebrews, he's talking about, look at verse 8, of the Son, he says, and then we've got verses 8 and 9, your throne, O God, and then verse 10, you, Lord. He's, he's saying, that's the Lord Yahweh, Jehovah, that was being addressed in Psalm 102. And he is saying, this is the Son. He Jesus is that Yahweh. He is Him. And so, you know, when we talk about the divinity of the Son of God, we don't just find it in a few scattered places. It, it, once, we start, once we accept and we see clear scriptural teaching like this, we start to see it throughout the New Testament that you cannot come to any other conclusion but that Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God.
0: And Greg told me that today. And so I have a you know, New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, which I don't recommend for your devotions. And I, I took it off the shelf, and uh, which I don't use it often, <laughs> but I occasionally want to check to see what's, you know, what they've done because they, you know, they manipulate the text in important parts. And uh, famously, you know John 1.1, 1, 1, instead of saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God— they translate it in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, lowercase g, which is, uh, the, the, the argument from the Greek there does not work, but we don't get into that. Uh, but uh, th- they did not change this verse. Like, th- this verse is left exactly as he's describing it, so you can actually use even, I mean, I don't recommend ever using their translation, but if, if you're even talking to one of them, and you even wanted to point to their own text and say, look, of the Son, he says this and Oh, Lord, you, created the found, like you, you laid the yeah. foundations of the earth. So Jesus is even being called, Lord, maybe one day the, their editors will find that and get rid of it. But for right maybe. now, it is still in there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, th- this chapter is just phenomenal for seeing uh, the, 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 uh, how great Christ is. Let me, let me take you to another one. So he quotes Psalm 45 here. Let's turn there for just a moment. We won't read the whole psalm. Psalm 45. And this is, again, a psalm about the Davidic king on the day of the wedding. Uh, it's this glorious uh, psalm. But, man, there's some, there's some pretty strong language here in the description of this uh, anointed king in the line of David. It's a, it's a pretty—you well, wouldn't expect this to be describing uh, a Davidic king, but, but listen to how strong the language is. Uh, verse 1, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. So that's the Davidic king. My tongue is like a, the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome, of the sons of men. Grace is on your lips. God has blessed you forever, etc. Verse uh, 6, <clears throat> your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Do you guys see what just happened there? How many individuals are called God in those verses? Not one, but two. Look at verse 6. So the person being spoken to is God, right? Your throne, O God. So who are we talking to? We're talking to God. The Davidic king is being called God. So your throne, O God, the king is called God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You, who's you? God, right? The Davidic king. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God. You see, God has a God. Isn't that strange? So he's he's talking to God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Two individuals called God in the Old Testament. By the way, um, if you look at a Jewish Old Testament, they will do, and this, grammatically again, this is not the way to take this. They will try to manipulate this because they do not want it to say what it says. They'll say something. They'll change the language to something like. Uh, I can't remember how they change it, but they, they change the language in the Hebrew because they do not want it to say what it says, but it really does say this. So th- he's talking to the Davidic king, and he calls him God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God. So God has a God. So what well, clearly, the ultimate fulfillment of this text is Jesus, the Davidic king, who is God, who is, who's on a throne forever and ever. So you're looking at Jesus. He's the Davidic king, God and man, on the throne, Okay, so you're talking to him. Your throne, Jesus, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, Jesus, who is God, your God, the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I mean, that is Trinitarian language like you would not believe in the Old Testament. So the Davidic king is called God, and the Davidic king has a God who has anointed him. That's God the Father and God the Son. Uh, And and clearly... um, The ultimate fulfillment of this psalm is no question, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's just no question. And so, of course, if you go back to Hebrews, the author of Hebrews picks up right on this. Uh, Again, Hebrews 1, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, that's Jesus, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your throne. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So again, we see Jesus is God. Uh, he's Lord, He's God. He's the same nature as God. He's the imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe. He created the world. I don't know how much more clearly it could be said. Jesus is, is a divine person in the, tr- in the Trinity, uh, and the Holy Spirit will be mentioned in chapter two as well. So you have the whole Trinity here in, in pretty clear uh, picture. Uh, as we move toward a, cl- a close here, Greg, other thoughts th- of things we haven't
1: mentioned—not uh, that we have time to get into. <laughs> um, no, I mean it's it's just starting off. I mean, what he was just talking about, what I've been I've been sharing. You know, it, it should be clear even from this first chapter um, that Jesus cannot be reduced to just a good teacher, um, you know, a, a good moral influence. Um, you know he is the Son of God um, in his divine nature, but also as the Davidic king, so he 's like twice the Son of God and he 's twice the image of God i mean he, he, he as as the Son, he is the image of God um, in his nature as a divine being, and he 's also the perfect image of God as a human being. nobody ever represented God in their humanity like Jesus did so I mean you you see you know use Jonathan Edwards kind of this um, He's uh, diverse excellencies kind of come together in Jesus as the divine son and the human son, uh, and as the divine image and the the perfect human image, um, we cannot reduce him down. Um, He is the son of God. He is God. He is the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the ruler. He's the redeemer, um, and all these things that we've been looking at. So, you know, just settle it in your heart and and, and, in your minds that, you know what the Bible says about Jesus really is really is true. It's who he says he is, and don't settle for anything anything less. And if you ever have a conversation with someone, um, and, and you know the more you're saturated with this, the more you'll see this happen. When someone is is not talking about Jesus in the right way, you start to just have a sense something's not right. So you know, saturate your heart and your minds with Hebrews one and just the the, the super clear reality that Jesus is God, um, and it will sustain you through a lot, and it will guard you from error in an untold number of ways.
0: That's that's really good, and this is probably not not nearly that important, but but I do want to just mention this before we close. Look at verse six again here. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Um, that that word firstborn may also bother some people. You know, you, Why would you call Jesus firstborn? He was never, I mean, he was virgin birth, yes, but it's strange that, you know, why, would, why call him the firstborn? Well, let me just take you to one psalm before we wrap up. Turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Now, Psalm 89 is very long, and it deals with... Um, this sense of uh, discouragement after the kingdom uh, has been sort of destroyed by Babylon, and it looks hopeless. Is God going to keep his promise to David to have a king on the throne? So look, look with me, Psalm 89, and skip down to verse 20. Psalm 89, verse 20. I have found who? David. I found David, my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. Now, the, the him here, right, is the Davidic king. Everybody with me? is David. Uh, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand, David's hand, on the sea, and his right hand on the rivers. He... Shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn. And then he tells you what that means: the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, now, follow me here. Was David the firstborn son in his own physical family? No, he's one of the last. He may be the lastborn, right? He was like one of the. La- I think he's the lastborn. Mm-hmm. And so, no, he was not firstborn in his own family. So, why call him firstborn? How about this? Was he the first king in Israel's history? No, he's the second, so he's not the first. In what way is David firstborn? He's not a firstborn son in his family, he's lastborn. He's not the first king of Israel. Why call him a firstborn? He's not a firstborn at all. And the answer is, firstborn to us, we think about the time at which you were born. That's what we think of when we use firstborn. In the Bible, firstborn was a status issue, right? Jacob and Esau fighting over the right of the firstborn, right? The privileges of the firstborn. Isaac and Ishmael both want to be the firstborn, like that, that kind of thing, uh, uh, you know, Judah and Reuben and Simeon, they're all fighting for firstborn privileges, which Joseph ends up getting, I believe. But you got all this going on. Well, in what way is Jesus firstborn? It doesn't mean he was created. He created everything that exists. Jesus was not created. Firstborn is not about him being created. It's about his status. What is the status in verse 27? I will make the Davidic king firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. You see, that's a status thing, not a not a timing thing. It's not about Jesus being created. It's about Jesus receiving the title, the rank, as the first king, king of kings, right? The, the first king of all the kings of the earth. So when the New Testament says Jesus is the firstborn, it doesn't mean he's created. It means he's the king of kings. It means he's the highest ranking being in existence. He, he is the highest of the kings of the earth. And I think this language from the Old Testament is what's being picked up in the New Testament. Jesus is the David King who is the the firstborn. He's the highest of the kings of the earth. It's not about him being created. It's about him being greater than anyone else on earth and greater than all competitors. All right, Greg, can you close us in prayer? Yeah.
1: Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, we in some ways, feel like we've just drank from a a fire hydrant, Lord, as much as we have received in chapter 1. But God, it is your word, and it is clear, and it is powerful, and it is life-changing. And God, I pray that our hearts will be encouraged, our minds will be strengthened, um, our faith will be able to better endure because of the Jesus that we have seen and uh, considered um, in these few moments uh, tonight, um, Lord, help us to, to settle and be settled in our hearts that Jesus is who the Bible says He is, the eternal Son of the only God. He is the only way of forgiveness of sins and purification of sins. He is the true King. He reigns over all creatures, angels included. Um, Lord, may our hearts be drawn to Him in, in trust, in rest, in hope, in joy, and love, and in confidence. Uh, Lord, especially in the world we live in today, uh, Lord, may this picture, this true picture, and these true words about our Savior uh, just uh, be a rock underneath our feet that we would not be moved, though the whole world continue to move away from you. Lord, may that never be true of us, but Lord, may we stand and faithfully proclaim who you are and all that you've done for us in this amazing savior jesus christ and it's in his name we pray amen
0: Amen. well seriously thank y'all for coming for an hour of dense hebrews right there ladies and gentlemen every week will not be that dense i promise you but that is that that, we're we're supposed to be done hang on i'm not even mic'd up anymore hang on one second so just this like this chapter hebrews one for me for years has been just intriguing and i i recommend on your own time going back and working through it, get some good study Bibles, get some good material and just work through it. It is, I just feel like it's endless in terms of the insights because the way he quotes the Old Testament and how he applies it to Jesus, it is so worth our time to, to really do it. I, I know it may, it may feel like hard work and it is, but it is so rewarding on the other side to see what the, the jewels that are in, in this text. So thank you guys very much.